An Ohio city has voted to make their city a sanctuary for the unborn. David Delighton says National Institute of Health funded research grafted illegally aborted baby scalps onto lab mice. The United States Supreme Court is set to hear a major abortion case that could challenge Roe versus Wade. A bill to decriminalize abortion has been defeated in the Dominican Republic. Richard Dawkins reiterates his position that children with Down syndrome should be aborted. And more good news from Canada, Croatia, the United States, and the United Kingdom, and more coming right up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Pulse. My name is Peter, the host of the show, and with me again is my wonderful co-host, Cameron. Hello, sir. Hello, and welcome to The Pulse. For all of you who are tuning in, a monthly roundup of all of the interesting and important news from around the world as it pertains to abortion. I want to kick off with a bit of a clarification as to why it is that we focus solely on abortion-related news. Obviously, in recent weeks, there's been tragic news come out here in Canada regarding 215 corpses of children killed at a residential school in interior British Columbia, something that we in the pro-life movement absolutely mourn. There's a tremendous amount of other news that is happening around the world. And yet, as the Pro-Life Guys podcast, we need to focus on news that relates to abortion specifically. Thankfully, there is an incredible number of news agencies and outreach organizations that are working to reach tons of other social issues in our world. And that is partly what allows us, Peter and I, as the Pro-Life Guys podcast, to be able to focus specifically on abortion-related news. And so we have a lot of good stuff coming up, a lot of really sad stuff coming up. Peter, let's dive into it. Yeah, thank you, sir. We are going to start with some good news. An Ohio city has voted to ban abortion, declaring itself a sanctuary city for the unborn. The City Council of Lebanon, Ohio, voted unanimously to approve the city law, which, and I quote, makes it illegal to provide an abortion, aid an abortion, provide money or transportation for an abortion, and provide instructions for an abortion within the city limits of Lebanon, said the inquirer. It continues, it exempts the pregnant woman who seeks an abortion from prosecution. Violation of the law would be punishable by up to six months in jail and a $1,000 fine. According to pro-life activist Mark Harrington from Created Equal in Ohio, this includes at-home chemical abortions like the abortion pill, which this new law considers contraband. Republican Mayor Amy Brewer said, and I quote, we are clearly saying in our community that we do not think it is in our best interest to open a clinic or a hospital that does abortions. We are elected to make decisions based on what, what is good for our community today. End quote. Obviously, the pro-abortion movement is not pleased with this, with Stephanie Coleman Baker, the state organizing director for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Ohio, told the council during their deliberations. She said, and I quote, the residents of Lebanon deserve leaders who listen to the needs of community members rather than playing politics with people's lives and health, end quote. Ex exemptions in these, this ordinance include ectopic pregnancy, a miscarriage, or preserving the health of the unborn child. There is no mention here of exemptions in cases of rape or incense, uh, incest, 
within this ordinance. Yeah, Peter, I think this is an incredibly exciting um, development here and and looking at local municipal leaders who are taking ownership of the well-being and the rights of all of their citizens, not just their born citizens. I think this is really encouraging for people around the world to know that we don't need to continue passing the buck. Here in Canada, how often do we hear municipal or provincial um, government officials directing it towards the federal government? Oftentimes, the federal government bounces it straight back. We have people who have the courage to step up to the plate and and look after the welfare of their citizens, um, the protection of mothers and fathers and their children, I think is really encouraging. And this isn't the first um, safe city for preborn children in America. Um, this is really exciting. There are now 29, I believe, sanctuary cities. It was started in 2019 by Wascom, um, Texas. And this is a bold move for cities to put their stamp on the abortion issue and say, not only politically, but this trans translates into educational value as well, informing their citizens that pre-born children are recognized and have rights in this town, in this city. I think this is really, really encouraging. And hopefully there's more and more groups that come on, uh, on board with this sanctuary city activity that's happening. As I mentioned, this is the 29th city. I hope that there are dozens more by the end of the year. And it seems like um, the abortion industry itself is trying to deal with this in, in a variety of ways because they don't really know how to deal with it. They don't know how to try to overrule the will of the city, seeing not only the mayors, but city councilors who are um, democratically elected by their constituents. They don't really know how to push back because they're not used to seeing such a wide separation of the status quo. So many people in these towns opposing abortion. It's really encouraging to see them mobilized, really encouraging to see the politicians acting on the encouragement of their constituents. And I hope, as I mentioned, that there's more and more towns across America, and who knows, maybe even around the world, who adopt this sanctuary city status, protecting preborn children from the moment their lives begin. Yeah, that's right. And with that good news, we, we, we go into some bad news now, some terrible news that we've heard David Delighton, who is the founder of the pro-life activist group, the Center for Medical Progress, and is most known in pro-life circles for the one that exposed the fact that Planned Parenthood was selling baby body parts, is calling for doc Dr. Anthony Fauci to testify before the U.S. Congress about the nearly half a million dollar grant that his agency awarded to the University of Pittsburgh to conduct research using baby, using aborted babies' scalps. Talking to T Tucker Carlson of Fox News, this is what Delighton said, and I quote, At the University of Pittsburgh, they were doing a study where they were taking the scalps of five-month-old aborted babies, and they were grafting them onto lab rats and lab mice to see how much longer they could keep them growing for. You can actually see the photographs in the published study of little baby scalps grafted onto the backs of lab rats growing little baby hairs. Those would have been the hairs growing on the heads of little infants in Pittsburgh if they hadn't been killed by abortion and stitched onto lab rats for experimentation, end quote. He went on to say that this study was funded by multiple grants, grants from the NIAID office, which is the National Institute of Allergy and Effect Infectious Diseases, and that office is run by the one and only Dr. Anthony Fauci. And he goes on to say, now, while that's horrific enough, um, the, the fact that these 
we have these aborted baby scalps is something that came from an illegal procedure itself. He goes on to say, David Delighton does, and I quote, the fact that they were using scalps from five-month-old aborted babies, that means that the heads of those children probably needed to be intact in order to get the scalps, which is an indication that those are either partial birth abortion or infants delivered alive and whole, end quote. Federal law in the United States bans dilation and extraction abortion, which is also known as partial birth abortions. The Partial Birth Abortion Act, which was signed into law in 2003, prohibits all of these abortions. And this was a law that was upheld by the Supreme Court in 2007. And so the fact that we have these scalps to be able to do this sort of testing on came from an illegal practice in the first place. But very few uh, are making any noise, absolutely no one outside of the pro-life camp. Yeah, absolutely barbaric um, experimentation happening on these children. As Taladin said, obviously, these are the scalps of children who would be infants and, and possibly even toddlers by now here in Pittsburgh. Um, and they've been grafted onto the backs of mice, which in itself is pretty gnarly. Um, but I think that we need to challenge more and more. A lot of people continue to maintain this argument that abortion is a very hygienic, very, very... Um, acceptable procedure. And that's why they're working so hard to silence people like David Daleiden, who have exposed the selling of baby body parts as he has done over the last several years um, in the sting operations that he's done. And this is something that abortion advocates need to be challenged with. They need to be challenged with the horrific underbelly of the abortion industry, that this isn't something that there's a few bad apples in the entire industry. This has been something that has been documented time and time again. And we should be horrified by this happening. We should be horrified by the fact that this is not only an illegal procedure, but an illegal procedure that is delivering these children in a way that allows them to have their scalps harvested and implanted on, onto mice for the sake of experimentation, this is absolutely barbaric and we need to challenge the abortion industry with these facts. We need to challenge them on these grounds to help them understand the fact that what they're doing is morally reprehensible in every single way. And so I'm sure there'll be more news coming out. David Aladdin has been a, a very, very courageous defender, not only of preborn children in general, but of... Um, exposing the reality of what the abortion industry is doing. I think that we need to stay tuned to what he is doing, what he is exposing next, because this time and time again, it feels like month after month, we are seeing more and more horrific realities coming from the abortion industry, which should horrify us all the more when we consider the fact that these are literally the weakest and most vulnerable members of the human family. The moment Every progressive has feared since the United States Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died last year has come. And that is the fact that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear an abortion case. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, which will take up the question of the constitutionality of a 2018 Mississippi state law that bans abortions after the first 15 weeks of pregnancy. And this gives the justices an opportunity to reconsider the precedent set by the landmark Roe versus Wade and by Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This ex the existing precedent is that states may not ban abortions before fetal viability, which is typically typically around 22 weeks or later. The the this case, the Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, 
asks whether all pre-viability restrictions on abortion are unconstitutional. Thus, Mississippi is asking the justices to review this viability standard that's been set in the previous precedents, arguing that the rule prevents states from defending maternal health and its interest in protecting life. Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Flinch Fitch wrote, and I quote, it is well past time for the court to revisit the wisdom of the viability bright line rule, end quote. Now, our colleague Jonathan Van Maren uh, looked into this a little bit more, and he had a conversation with one Clark Forsyth, who is the senior counsel at Americans United for Life and author of the seminal work, Abuse of Discretion, The Inside Story of Roe versus Wade. And his opinion is that this is not like he does not expect Roe versus Wade to be overturned, as some pro-lifers believe are going to happen. He, this is what he says, and I quote, Pro-life people should have modest expectations because of the question presented and accepted by the justices to decide. And this is the question, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. That is, frankly, a modest question. It's an incremental question. However, not to uh, disappoint us, perhaps, however, he says it is certainly a bigger question than merely dealing with a parental notice of abortion statute, which is involved in another case from India, Indiana, pending at the court, end quote. But he does give some hope. He says whether Roe falls in the decade depends on many factors, but he sees reasons for optimism. And he says, and I quote, we have the best majority on the on the court since Roe in 1973 and maybe even longer and 40 plus cases in the pipeline. So there are many opportunities for the court to address the abortion issue End quote. The court will hear the case in its term beginning in October, and it is likely to reach a decision by June of 2022. Yeah, I think that this is absolutely encouraging news, especially in light of the questions that often come up regarding the value of these various pro-life bills that have been presented and that we've covered here on The Pulse over the last several episodes. People sometimes ask the question, what value do they bring if they're not able to be enacted in those states? And I think this speaks directly to the value that they bring. I think it is worth mentioning, as you touched on, Peter, that Despite the new conservative majority, despite the growing pro-life sentiment within America, um, which is kudos to the educational arm of the pro-life movement um, in the states there, an overwhelming majority of longtime veteran pro-life leaders are still hesitant to expect too much. Many of them suggest that this may only hollow further out the question first put forward by Blackman in the, the 1973 decision that there are ways of sidestepping a complete overturning, obviously, of Roe v. Wade. And so I think that we do need to temper our optimism and yet still remain optimistic. As you mentioned, this may and hopefully will crack open this um, landmark case. It's been plaguing America for over over 40 years now sort of thing. And, and we need to be aware of the fact that this can open up opportunities for the court to make more dramatic progress later on. Coming up in the coming months and years, there are so many other bills, as you've mentioned, only one of them from Indiana. There's countless others um, that can be mentioned as well. And so this is simply one of the many different directions that pro-life um, political people have been working on to be able to start cracking down and breaking up the Roe v. Wade decision. 
the other things worth knowing is that it, it is hard to know exactly how the justices will vote, but it will be an opportunity to witness how this supposed six to three majority breakdown that um, Presidents George W. Bush and Donald Trump, um, the appointees that they have nominated, will actually pan out. We have been celebrating these Supreme Court appointees, and now this will be arguably one of the first times that they'll be put to the test challenging how pro-life are they willing to act? What degree of boldness are they willing to take on? Peter, as I'm sure you can imagine, abortion supporters themselves are not very impressed by this most recent development. Um, Hillary Schneller, an attorney for the Jackson Women's Health Organization, an abortion clinic in Mississippi, wrote, and I quote, in an unbroken line of decisions over the last 50 years, the court has held that the Constitution guarantees each person the right to decide whether to continue a pre-viability pregnancy. While the state has interest around pregnancy, before viability, the state's interests are not strong enough to support a prohibition of abortion, end quote. This is something that I'm sure many more abortion advocates will be rallying around. I, I hope that pro-lifers recognize that they will not go down without a fight. This is only um, the, the very beginning, I'm sure, of the political collapse of the Roe v. Wade decision. But I hope and pray that we can join together in supporting these pro-lifers and pro-life initiatives and join in prayer for these Supreme Court justices that they might make a good wholesome, life-affirming decision that allows more children to be saved from abortion. This is an absolutely essential ruling, and though there is still hope if the ruling does not go in our direction, we certainly hope and pray that it will, and as I mentioned, ensure the protection of more children from abortion. This is an excellent opportunity. This is something that political um, proponents in the states have been working towards for, for decades, I'm sure. And so this is what we've been working towards. There are so many other um, abortion-related cases coming down the pipeline that the Supreme Court will have opportunity to discuss as well. And yet I hope and pray that you will continue to reflect upon and stay up to date with the news as this develops. As Peter mentioned, this will be something that will start being debated uh, in the autumn coming up and Lord willing will be decided and ruled upon around a year from now. That's right. And speaking of hoping and praying, I just want to uh, remind you, whoever has listened to the last month's episode of The Pulse, that last month we highlighted that the United Nations, the international abortion industry, and abortion supporters were pushing the president of the Dominican Republic to decriminalize abortion in his nation. Well, we come this month with great news that um, the Dominican Republic's Chamber of Deputies has rejected this international pressure, voting to maintain pro-life pr protections within their country. The, this lower house specifically rejected the activist amendment that would have decriminalized abortion in cases of rape or incest if the mother's life were at risk and if the preborn child had a terminal prognosis. The vote was 111 to 45. Now, if you've been following this case, there was a section added to the penal code regarding medical emergencies in obstetric situations. And some pro-abortion advocates that I've seen have argued that this is considered a victory for them. But when looking into it a little bit more, we learn from the director of the country's 40 Days for Life, Matharis Rivas Reyes, he, he argued that the provision was not in fact a win for abortion activists. What was approved, he said, was Article 112, which is even found in the old penal code, which states that when the woman is in danger, 
The doctor has the freedom to act with all medical techniques to save both lives, but in the event that one of the two lives is lost, then the doctor would not face any criminal charges. And quote, he can raise continues on. He says, thank God in the end, it was possible to write the code without including the three causes of abortion, end quote. This again, Peter, is, is something that we need to take as a massive victory. This is not something that is, is simply um, letting out a deep breath and, and thankful that, that things didn't go very badly. Obviously, they could have, and we should um, relax a little bit, I, I'm sure, and celebrate that. But we need to stay vigilant. Obviously, this is not the last um, that the Dominican Republic will hear of the abortion issue. This is how it started in Ireland. And over the span of 20 or 30 years, they whittled down Ireland to what is now almost a, a, a Free reign, um, free reign on, on abortion. And so I hope that those in the Dominican Republic will stay vigilant, but we absolutely need to celebrate this victory, rejoice um, with those who are rejoicing in, in that area, and, and look at this as hope for our other countries. Here in Canada, in America, there are at times when, when we have a hard time celebrating um, any kind of pro-life victory, we absolutely need to take this opportunity to celebrate with our brothers and sisters in the movement for this great victory, to offer support and encouragement for them in this continued fight, and learn from them as well. Learn from them in how we can empower our politicians to hold a very life-affirming stance. We had 111 politicians there in the Dominican Republic who are willing to boldly stand in defense of life um, in Areas that countless other politicians have um, buckled at the knees and, and conceded to the abortion pressure. And so we need to look at what they've done successfully and start applying that more and more towards our own politicians because we do have many pro-life politicians here in Canada and other countries around the world. However, often they lack the courage or the confidence that they need to be able to vote as those in the Dominican Republic did. And so let's celebrate this victory. Let's be wary of not letting our guard down to ensure that this doesn't get overturned five years from now or 10 years from now as it has in other countries. And let's look for opportunities to learn from these incredible pro-life advocates and organizations in the Dominican Republic so that we can start enacting some of their lessons here in Canada and wherever it is that you're listening from. The nation of Malta has been a stalwart supporter of the right to life for preborn children with a pro-life prime minister and a pro-life president who have both stated that they will not sign any abortion legislation as long as they are in office. To understand Malta's position, Dr. Miriam Skiberes, who serves as the, as the chairwoman of the Life Network Foundation of Malta, says this, and I quote, the deliberate killing of unborn children in their mother's womb by abortion in any form is illegal in Malta, as is homicide. Malta's current position in June of 2020 is that of a sanctuary for life, a very brave solitary stand which we owe to past and present political leaders who, in spite of multitudes of political pressures, have always maintained our right as a sovereign country to defend life from conception. End quote. But on May 12, independent member of parliament Marlene Farigia made global headlines by putting forward a bill that would decriminalize abortion, which is a first step towards legalization. Now, even though prosecutions are incredibly rare for the roughly 400 women who travel to procure an abortion and the 200 or so who order abortion pills via the internet annually, 
Faragia proposes that all penalties for abortion and facilitation be removed in favor of a 10-year prison term for anyone perpetrating a forced abortion. She also proposes to strike three articles from the Maltese Criminal Code, including the prohibition on, and I quote, procuring a miscarriage, which uh, essentially is, is getting an abortion. However, the latest update to this that we've heard from a key pro-life leader, and he says that it is unlikely that this bill will be put to vote, and we thank God for that. Amen. And I think that we need to look critically at what the abortion industry is trying to do here in Malta, that they obviously are trying to be very, very crafty in how they start introducing pro-abortion legislation into Malta. I find it fascinating how this supposedly pro-abortion advocate suggested that instead of these penalties, we should go towards a 10-year prison term because you know that what they want to do is they want to decry putting any woman in prison for 10 years for obtaining an abortion. They're, they're changing the dynamic of the conversation so that they can cry out, how dare you penalize people for 10 years of prison for a decision about their body? I'm very, very thankful um, that, again, there are courageous and and confident and competent people in Malta who are resisting abortion being pushed upon them by so many entities that are working outside of Malta, forcing it inwards, um, because we've seen this around the world. We've seen it, tragically, as we've covered in Ireland. Malta is the next domino in Europe that they have been working on, and I think that we, again, need to give thanks for those who have had the courage to stand up in defense of life in that country and continue to pray and support those that they might remain vigilant. So this independent member of parliament has obviously, as I mentioned, been working with external forces and and have been rallying people even to be protesting outside of the House of Parliament, holding up signs with, with slogans including trust women and abortion is already happening in Malta, suggesting that it's already here, we might as well embrace it. As we've seen time and time again around the world, they're not satisfied with few and far between abortions. This line that Bill Bill Clinton um, has championed for so long, safe, legal, and rare, very few abortion advocates nowadays even remember to tack on the rare factor. Um, They're not interested in keeping abortion rare. They're interested in making this as accessible as possible to elevate the quote-unquote quality of life of the people who are supposedly already in this world. So glad that we have politicians and educational people and pastoral people in Malta who are keeping abortion at bay, keeping it out of that country. And I hope and pray that they will continue to do so with the strength provided by our good Lord. Amen. Moving on, atheist, evolutionary biologist and Emeritus University of Oxford professor Richard Dawkins has once again said that people should abort their children if they have Down syndrome. Dawkins sparked backlash in 2014 when he advised someone on Twitter to, and I quote, abort it and try again, and quote, if the person has a child with Down syndrome, adding, I quote again, it would be immoral to bring into the bring it into the world if you have the choice, end quote. According to the Daily Caller, Dr. Dawkins re-emphasized this argument again in early May when he spoke with radio host Brandon O'Connor, who happens to be a father of a child with Down syndrome. Dawkins stressed that, you know, he doesn't doubt that the parents of, of a child with Down syndrome don't love their child, but said that having a child with, uh, without a disability would make the world a happier place. Referencing his 2014 tweet, he said that 
he may have been, you know, he may have worded that a little bit too strongly, but did affirm that his position stands by saying, and I quote, but given that the amount of suffering in the world probably does not go down, probably goes up compared to having another child who doesn't have Down syndrome, then that's what I meant, end quote. When asked, you know, uh, this 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 uh, radio host, Brandon O'Connor, dove in a little bit more and pride and asked some challenging questions. And, and when Dawkins was asked how he knows that having a child with Down syndrome increases suffering in the world, Dawkins replied, and I quote, I don't know it for certain. It seems to me to be plausible that if a child has any kind of disability, then you probably would increase the amount of happiness in the world more by having another child instead, end quote. But when pressed even further, he admitted that he had no direct evidence for this position. Yeah. And, and this is something that we've talked about, Peter, on the program before about this notion of ableism and how humans in the eyes of, of Richard Dawkins and countless others, tragically, only have value in what they contribute to the world, contributing happiness, contributing material good or, or um, contributions towards the world. And I think this is something that we desperately need to get away from. This idea of we need to increase the happiness in the world and happiness is mutually exclusive from any form of suffering. Richard Dawkins seeks to limit the amount of suffering in our world simply by eliminating people who may suffer or may cause other people to suffer. And at the end of the day, we in the pro-life movement recognize that there is suffering and that we need to work to alleviate that suffering by addressing these situations. I think that it's a fool's errand to try to decide whether or not a child with Down syndrome is increasing the suffering in a world or decreasing the suffering in a world. At the very little, at the very least, though, we can agree that killing humans because they suffer is a very, very dangerous road to go down. This is a very slippery slope. And at the end of the day, Basing our human rights on how much happiness we bring to others is an incredibly dangerous and downright unconstitutional in every nation that I'm aware of way of deciding who's allowed to live and who's allowed to die. This notion of you only get protection or your, your parents will only um, benefit from you as a child if you don't have a disability is downright rude and, and despicable and does not speak at all into the beauty and value of these children's lives. It's not a matter of the fact that they are often very, very happy children. I've, for those of you who have interacted with children with Down syndrome, I'm sure that you can attest that very often they are very, very joyful um, people. And yet that doesn't give them value. The fact that they're joyful does not give them value. The fact that they're living members of the human family means that we should not be allowed to kill them. And we need to look for better ways to manage and alleviate the suffering that exists in our world rather than simply killing people, as Richard Dawkins would suggest. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. When asked if he knows if he knew of anyone who had Down syndrome, he admitted that no, there was no one within his circles and no one that he knew that had Down syndrome. And so without the direct evidence and without the knowledge of someone who had Down syndrome, it really does seem like he's speaking from sort of this academic place uh, that is sort of devoid from the real world and from the idea, as you mentioned, Cam, that we don't get human rights based on how happy we are, or how, how, how much happiness we bring to others, but because we are members of the human family and therefore have an inherent right to life. We're going to conclude this segment with a number of good news from the abortion wars. Starting in Croatia, the mainstream media is increasingly concerned that pro-life campaigners are gaining ground in Croatia, where, according to the Irish Times, and I quote, the anti-abortion movement has become increasingly loud 
in public discourse, end quote. Although the Constitutional Court stated that abortion must remain legal several years ago, there is growing support for other restrictions that would reduce the abortion rate, and pro-life politicians are willing to champion the cause. Abortion even became a political issue in last year's elections with angry debates regarding when a human life begins, which is the key question in this conversation, and those were the, the, the debates that erupted during the campaign. Absolutely, Peter. And this is encouraging news, even for countries like Croatia, in which abortion is very readily available, that there is growing pro-life sentiment. Because when you think about abortion, the only natural conclusion is to come to oppose abortion. That's why we see so many people that we interact with on street corners and on doorsteps coming to reject abortion, even after only a five-minute conversation. Because as these conversations start happening more and more, more and more people are going to come to reject abortion. So huge props to Pro-Life Europe and other pro-life organizations that are working to kindle this conversation within these various countries. And I hope that this continues to grow within Austria and the surrounding countries. All right. Next one is Canada. In Canada, fewer women are traveling to the United States for late-term abortions due to the COVID-19 pandemic and the restrictions uh, surrounding border crossings. A global news report was intending to expose a lack of access, but actually revealed a number of things about Canada's abortion regime. Over the last five years, dozens of Canadian women, primarily from Ontario, have been referred each year to doctors and clinics in the United States to receive, quote-unquote, medically necessary abortions that they cannot access at home, but which are covered under the provincial health care plans, which means our provincial tax dollars pay for those abortions that are happening in the United States, specifically those late-term abortions. But between, Mar- between March of 2020 and April of 2021, only 11 Ontario women obtained late-term abortions in the United States, those as well paid for by the province. So a significant decrease there. But Our faithful Trudeau government, which is uh, very uh, pro-abortion and it considers abortion a core value of its party and of what it means to be someone who uh, believes in human rights for all human beings, they are pouring money into ensuring that travel and logistical support to individuals who have to go long distances to access abortion care is accessible to them. They're making sure that they have the money, that they have the access to get the abortions that they quote unquote need if those abortions require long-distance travel. Mm-hmm. This this news story was very much an educational tool for a lot of Canadians because in the conversations, Peter, that you and I are having with Canadians, many people are completely unaware of the fact that not only do our tax dollars cover almost all abortions performed in Canada, but they also cover, as you mentioned, these abortions that are being performed outside of our borders on Canadian women who are being sent there because nobody in Canada is willing to do the abortion at that stage of pregnancy or for various other reasons. I think that this absolutely, again, needs to be shared from the rooftops, reminding people that in Canada, it is completely legal to have an abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, regardless of whether your local abortion provider is comfortable performing that abortion, regardless of whether the Canadian Medical Association has recommended that abortions are only performed before 24 weeks. This is something that is legally accessible and has no legal repercussions for any mother seeking out these abortions. We need to be aware of that. We need to share that with our friends and family and build opposition to the current abortion status quo from this starting point. That's right. And moving on to the United States, Marjorie Dannenfelser of the Susan B. Anthony List, which is America's most powerful political organization, 
is expressing optimism about the viability of the Hyde Amendment. Dannon Felser told reporters last week that United States Senator Joe Manchin, who's a pro-life Democrat and is a key swing vote, had spoken to her at length and had committed to supporting the Hyde Amendment in the upcoming budget battle with President Joe Biden, who retracted his support for the life-saving amendment during his election campaign. Dannon Felser says, I'm confident that we'll not only have his vote, but his advocacy there, end quote. Now, for those of you who are unaware, the Hyde Amendment is a legislative provision barring the use of federal funds to pay for abortion, except for certain instances, including to save the life of the woman or if the pregnancy arises from incest or rape. And according to Dr. Michael News Research, this amendment has actually saved millions of lives lives since taking effect in 1980. Mm-hmm. I don't think the Hyde Amendment gets nearly as much um, attention as it ought to for its life-saving effect that it's had in America. And again, very grateful that there are people, especially these swing votes, that there's a handful of them in, in Carolina and other places in which they could hold the keys towards um, canceling and, and basically bring an end to the Hyde Amendment. And they are standing staunchly in rejection of this in spite of the the pressure, I'm sure, from the president and countless others. Um, kudos to them for their resilience in this effort. Kudos to the um, Susan B. Anthony list for what they are doing on the political level for ensuring that those politicians have the support, have the talking points, have the confidence that they need to support the Hyde Amendment and help keep tax dollars from killing babies in America. Um, this this absolutely needs to keep our attention. And I will be very, very curious to see if a vote actually does come up, if these Republicans and these other swing voters do stay true to the cause of life and keep the Hyde Amendment in America. And finally, according to The Guardian, the international abortion industry just took just took a massive hit as the United Kingdom slashed abortion related funding. The British government is slashing its funding to the United Nations Population Fund, or the UNFPA. The agency confirmed on Wednesday, uh, just this last week, that the United Kingdom, its largest donor, is cutting funding for contraceptives and reproductive health supplies by 85% this year. That's going from £154 million to £23 million, and they are cutting their core funding from £20 million to 8 million pounds. The UNFPA said the 130 million pounds that has been withheld would have helped prevent a quarter of a million child and maternal deaths, 14.6 million unintended pregnancies, and 4.3 million unsafe abortions. This is a huge blow to the UNFPA, which works in 150 countries, working in large part to make abortion accessible. Britain is the first donor government to back away from these sorts of commitments. The cuts will have a knockoff effect, obviously, on the work of NGOs like the International Planned Parenthood Federation and MSI Reproductive Choices, which from our vantage point is an absolutely great thing. In 2020, for example, the MSI Reproductive Choices received about $8.5 million, which is about £6 million of supplies from the UNFPA. Much of that went to abortion access. 
This this caught me completely off guard, Peter, because speaking with my colleagues over in Britain, they're often talking about just how staunchly pro-abortion and supportive of abortion um, things are. And yet this is incredibly encouraging news. Tragically, I'm sure there will be um, a knock-on effect with with other countries. Tragically, unfortunately, probably Canada is going to step up to the plate to support um, these essential maternal health care needs. And yet I think this is really encouraging that there are more and more countries that are starting to question whether or not this neocolonialism of funneling our tax dollars towards bringing abortion to foreign countries, to developing nations, um, is actually appropriate and actually a, a, a beneficial use of our tax dollars. I think this is encouraging coming from the UK government, and I hope and pray um, continually that this will limit the number of abortions being performed in Africa, in South America, in other developing nations from around the world. That's right. I think about when Donald Trump made certain commitments like this, Justin Trudeau and the liberal government here in Canada, they upped their funding and uh, and tried to send more and more money overseas to the global south just to make sure that abortion could remain as accessible as possible, which was really a black mark on our Canadian record. <laughs> One of many black marks, really. But that is our episode of The Pulse. As you've noticed, there are a lot of good news stories that we've reported this month. We don't try to just get the good news or the bad news. We try to just get a general idea of what's happening around the world. This month happened to be a lot of good news. And this is an indication that the pro-life movement is fighting and fighting hard. There are large battles and small battles, from battles in the Supreme Court to battles on the sidewalks. Pro-life activists, lobbyists, and politicians are fighting around the world to ensure that the voiceless pre-born children are represented in the halls of power and are represented in the public square. And so we can be extremely thankful for the work that is happening around the country, happening in our own nation, perhaps wherever you might be. And we want to encourage you to get involved in any way that you can. There's an educational arm of the pro-life movement that seeks to change public opinion, that goes to the culture, that has one-on-one -on -one conversations, that seeks to get people to see the reality of what abortion is so that they can turn from it and, and recognize abortion for the horror that it is. There are people in the pastoral arm of the movement who are providing crisis pregnancy support, who are providing post-abortion counseling and so much other, so many other things. Uh, that is essential as well. Then there's the political arm of the pro-life movement. A lot of what we talk about here happens to be involved in the political arm of the movement. And so there are so many different facets of the abortion war that you can be involved in. And we really want to encourage you to do just that, to get involved, to be a voice for the voiceless, and to do what you can to protect and defend these pre-born children. Thank you so much for tuning in to The Pulse. I want to highlight some other uh, programs that we have. We have Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, where we talk to some of the activists, some of those the, the people working on the sidewalks, some of the people having these one-on-one -on -one conversations to hear their stories, to hear their motivations, and to hear their call for each and every one of us to get involved. Those are extremely inspiring uh, episodes that we have. You can find them on your favorite podcast catcher, or on YouTube, uh, which is a video format. So go check that out. We also have the regular Pro-Life Guys podcast episodes that come out every single Tuesday. We have apologetic-focused episodes where we want to share with you the tools that you can use to change minds and save lives from abortion, the apologetics that we use on the streets. We've seen uh, the apologetics that we've used change countless minds and, uh, and we've seen babies saved when they're coupled with abortion victim photography 
that we utilize as well. So go check out our regular episodes. We also have conversations with some of our heroes in the pro-life movement, the likes of which are Scott Klusendorf, um, Stephanie Gray Connors, and so many others who are doing some really great work in the movement. So go check them out. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast, catch your Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your content. And if you're going to find us on YouTube, we have video content there as well. Make sure to subscribe and leave a comment, leave a rating where the podcast catcher allows. One more thing as well, as the Pro-Life Guys podcast, you can support us financially. You could partner with us as the podcast, which is seeking to equip others to have good conversations about abortion and seeking to inform you about the the abortion war, not only in Canada, where we are, not only in the United States, where a lot of this seems to be happening, but also around the world. You can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash guys. That's patreon.com slash guys. If you need to reach out to us about anything, if you have a question for us, a comment, if you want to just uh, say hello, you can do that on our website, prolifeguys.com, prolifeguys.com. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. This was our May episode of The Pulse, which is important and interesting abortion-related news from around the world brought to you from a pro-life perspective. Again, thank you for tuning in. God bless you all, and we hope you tune in again next time.